Well, today we're going to talk about housing affordability and why it matters to you, the middle class and the future of our country. And well, today we've got the receipts. We have from Frontier and Demographia and courtesy of experts like Wendell Cox, the receipts on how bad housing affordability is going from bad to worse. A clear path forward requires looking back and learning. Good public policy requires human connection. It's a consideration of the facts, applying common sense and innovation. It's urban, it's rural, it's real life. We all have something to contribute. We all have a responsibility to get informed because there's a little piece of Canada in all of us, isn't there? Let's learn on this path together. This is Leaders on the Frontier. Okay, so in today's program, I'm delighted to have uh, two leading experts in the world on housing affordability. Uh, the one is uh, Senior Fellow Wendell Cox, the primary author of our annual report on housing affordability, and also uh, Charles Blaine, the president of the Urban uh, Reform Institute. So welcome, Wendell and Charles. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Well, it's, um, it's an honor to have you. I'm very excited um, in kind of a strange way, because this is kind of a depressing topic of housing affordability, but there's still hope in terms of how we could actually turn this difficult situation around. But the bottom line is that in, in our country, in Canada, many of our housing markets are severely tested when it comes to housing affordability. They're, they're in really rough shape, Wendell. And you've delivered again uh, just recently another annual report or index on housing affordability. And there's some really important findings. And I want to recommend that to our audience as we look at not only the state of housing affordability, but also the areas of solutions. So Wendell, what would you say is um, the, the key highlights of this report? And I want to then talk more about what is housing affordability and solutions. So what would you say are the highlights, Wendell? Well, essentially what you've had happen in Canada, and this has happened in other nations as well, and, uh, what you have happened that has happened in Canada is housing has become unaffordable for the middle class. If you go back to the 1971 census, the median house price was about three times the median household income. Today, the median priced house in the Toronto CMA is about 10 times the incomes. In the Vancouver CMA, it's 12 times the incomes. Uh, at the same wow. time, we still have places like Edmonton and Winnipeg and, uh, you know, um, even uh, in Atlantic Canada as well, where uh, the, the house prices are somewhere between three and four. So that's not not too bad. But the real mm -hmm. problem you've got, and this is this is really uh, uh, confirmed by a uh, by a report by the Organization for Economic Development for a Cooperation in Economic Development in Europe. Mm -hmm. um, you have a situation where the middle class faces an, an existential threat. If you want to qualify to buy even a condominium in uh, in Toronto or Vancouver, and I'm talking about the entire uh, census metropolitan area, not talking about just the cities, go out into the countryside, mm -hmm. you've got to anticipate um, an income probably of $100,000 or more just to qualify for the loan. So it okay. is a real problem. It isn't all over the country. Parts of the country are in much better shape than, uh, than others. 
and and that is one of the highlights that we cite is that one of the real answers is that people are beginning to move to these areas where housing is more offend, uh, is more affordable. Okay, so just to pursue that point, Wendell, a little bit, the report that you tabled that you can find on the Frontier website, how does it define affordability? What do you mean by that? What we mean, and, and this is based upon historical analysis of markets in the UK, the US, Canada, New Zealand, um, and, and what we found was before housing regulation got overly strict, and it varies. It, it, that happened in the 70s in Vancouver, and it took to the, the t- 2000s in Toronto. Before that time, houses generally tended to cost, median price house generally cost about three times median household incomes. So what we have is a, is a table that basically says from three to four is, I'm sorry, for three or under is affordable. Uh, three to four is moderately unaffordable. Four to five is seriously unaffordable. And above five is severely unaffordable. And as I said, at this okay. point in Toronto and Vancouver, you're talking at 12 and 10 times, you know. Wow. No, it, it's hard to imagine. So I like your definition of affordability because it kind of makes common sense. I mean, who can really afford to buy a home in Vancouver or Toronto, let alone a number of other select markets, is they're really punting out the middle class. It's 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 truly. Would you characterize it as a crisis, Charles? Yeah, I would. I mean, I, I think when you look at, at the situation that we're facing, I mean, as you guys are facing in Canada and that we're facing in many parts of the U.S., where middle class families, or even at some point, we're looking at millennials who are trying to move into that, you know, first starter home or things like that in or near their jobs, they can't find those opportunities. And, you know, luckily for many people, there are work from home opportunities now, and so they can live farther out. But for those who can't and who do have to go to work in in or around a city, but cannot afford to live in it, it is a crisis for them. And I think when you look at these families who often, you know, get a home in and around their work and build generational wealth through that, and then and pass that on, they're unable to do that in ways that they used to. And so not only is it a crisis now, but I imagine that it's going to be a crisis going forward as this situation worsens and people start to continue or actually continue to leave these cities and look um, elsewhere for affordable housing. Right on. It's, it's, um, it's so bad that, as you say, Charles, people are moving. So in your report, Wendell, did you pick up that kind of data that Canadians are packing up uh, to find a better future in another market. What is happening is absolutely unprecedented. If you look at in, in, if you look at your metropolitan areas, they tend to, they, they tend to be defined by Statistics Canada as having more than a hundred thousand people. They have been the locus of growth since the Second World War. In the last five mm-hmm. years, they've lost pop, they, they've lost domestic migrants. People are moving out of places like Toronto, um, for that matter, even. Uh, 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 places like Guelph that are a bit smaller, but metropolitan areas, and they're mm-hmm. moving to smaller areas. And the fastest, the, the, the areas with the fastest growth in terms of provi- interprovincial migration are places that aren't even, that, that don't even qualify as a census metropolitan area or a census agglomeration, areas that are highly rural. It is unprecedented. Mm-hmm. And by the same time, at the same time, we're seeing similar trends here. It's all being driven by housing affordability. Wow. So this is a crisis. It's not an overstatement to say that. This is all the hallmarks of 
abnormality and people having to really make major life decisions in order to cope. Uh, is that a fair comment, Wendell? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. What you have is a situation where the regulatory structure, this is not something that happened because of the market. Nobody should think that for one moment. It's happened because of the regulatory structure, drawing lines, urban growth boundaries, um, agricultural land reserves, uh, green belts, drawing lines around urban areas creates a situation where it forces the prices of houses up. Just like way long before you two were born, um, the, uh, the Middle Eastern countries imposed an embargo. And we saw in this country and in Canada, we saw uh, gasoline prices uh, doubling, mm -hmm. tripling or more overnight. Well, that's what happens when you create this kind of a situation. So, so Wendell, you're saying that government created this mess. Would you agree with Charles that kind of analysis that government is really the villain behind this uh, mess? I think so. I mean, I think government and then you have kind of a small cabal of people who are supporting these policies from the outside that then put pressure mm -hmm. on government um, to continue to enforce these policies and to even go farther. And, you know, some of these folks will often say that, like Wendell mentioned, Toronto, they'll call it an anomaly and say that it's because of one specific city or something. But you see it in many major urban areas, even in the city of Houston, where I live, we've, uh, you know, the Houston has thrived for decades because of how mm -hmm. affordable it has been, the economic opportunities that people are able to take advantage of. But in recent years, we've seen the population here start to stall. And then now we're seeing it slightly decline as folks are moving out to the unincorporated areas, or like Wendell mentioned, the areas that aren't actually considered um, census designated places because there just aren't enough people there yet. And so you're mm -hmm. seeing that happen all over. And you can't help but to look at the policies that are imposed by government and then the folks who are continuing to push those policies, because it's clear as day that that is what's causing the issue. Okay, so in Canada, the this area of housing affordability, this topic is is quite hot. Is it as people see the Canadian dream dissolve before their eyes? I mean, I I was in at my uh, dentist's office, and um, uh, a, a person working with me there said, "You know, I'm, I'm looking seriously at moving uh, from British Columbia to Alberta because I we we don't want to live in this tiny little condominium." And so she's just so frustrated and she was wondering why the heck is this going on? And it's very, I think, you know, it's increasingly common for people to express that level of not just simply sadness, but there is a, there is a sense of anger. And so there, I think that those emotions are being directed to every level of government. And you hear it in the political discourse where people are kind of blaming each other. Why is there uh, this uh, lack of housing affordability? And it's, it's like they're running and searching for all kinds of solutions, but it doesn't seem like they're, they're um, getting the, the major solution, which is to, to open up land, as per your report, Wendell. Are you observing the same type of almost dysfunctional political conversation? Oh, yeah, but, but it's happening in virtually all the countries that have this problem. One of the problems is... Oh, is that right? One of the problems is the planning fraternity, the, the urban planners, really believe in this thing. They want to draw lines around cities. Um, when they do that, they force up the floor value of every property within that boundary. And, um, and so this is a problem. And, and the thing that goes wrong after that, for example, I mean, the, the number of people that have moved out, the net number of people that have moved out of the Toronto metropolitan area to places like, like um, 
uh, Kitchener, Waterloo, uh, Guelph, London, uh, Peterborough. Um, this, this, uh, what has happened as those people have moved out there is the same problem is developing there because they have the same policies. That's Uh why we argued in our report that, that, that the salvation of the middle class in Canada requires beginning to open up land and, and allow the market to develop the housing that people want. And, and my great fear is right now, Atlantic Canada looks very attractive from a from a per perspective of affordability uh, but it could be as bad as the uh, as the exurbs of Toronto at this point again Guelph London etc in just a few years it only took 7 years for all of those places i mentioned before to go from mm-hmm. uh, ratios of 3 or 4 to 7 or 8 and they're going to keep going up as long as the demand exceeds the supply, which it will if you don't allow the building on the fringe where families can have houses and have kids. Okay, so that's the bottom line, is that you can cut through all this noise, but you have to open up land for people to live. So are there any cities, Charles, in your experience, you look at these things worldwide, that are listening, decision makers are actually listening, there seems to be a lot that are tone deaf, that that's when everything's said and done. That's that's the big part of the solution. Period, isn't it, Charles? Or is there any hope for us? Right. Well, I mean, it, that's the thing. It, the pr- pressure, public pressure, is what changes policy. And and here in Texas, we've seen some response to that. We have seen you know kind of a, a restriction on what counties can do in terms of overseeing land and allowing people to still build kind of outside of the cities. And we've seen even the city of Houston. I mean, sprawl is is our friend. That is why it has remained affordable for as long as it did. But what we are seeing are some cities going in the opposite direction. So take um, our capital city, the city of Austin, very much on the the lower affordability side of the spectrum, they just passed a bond, a $276 million bond that they're going to use a lot of that money to purchase um, land surrounding the city and build conservation corridors to try Mm -hmm. to lock in that land and make it permanently green space. And so this is a city that people are moving to in droves that is getting more expensive every single year. And that has a lot of opportunity surrounding it. But the city is deciding to lock up that land. And they've already locked up millions of acres of land like that around the city. And so it's the public pressure in Austin, which is very different than the public pressure in Houston, that's pressuring Austin to, to lock up that land. Whereas here, we're still allowed it, allowing people to spread out and still allowing people to move into those unincorporated areas. But that is what it's going to take. It's, you know, a lot of cities tinker around the edges. You know, do they do permitting reform or they do these other little things which can speed up development and maybe, you know, negligibly reduce costs. Mm-hmm. But when you really want to reduce costs, you do have to open up that land and let people build where, where there's availability. Yeah, so well said. So there there could be hope if people speak up. And so speaking of, um, Wendell, we've got a graph we'd like to post up on overall costs uh, just to show that increase from the report. And if we could just share that, I think that's worth a thousand words in terms of illustrating how bad this, this issue is. So when we look at the reality, though, then of land, I think that it's very instructive to realize that in the report, uh, Wendell, you talk a lot about the interesting comparison among markets around the real cost of the house is not the house, it's the land. Can you tell us more about that? Sure. What we found, and we're uh, using data from Altus in Canada, which uh, estimates construction costs for residences and commercial facilities and all of that kind of thing. 
And we compared the price of building, I, I, I'm trying to remember, was it a 1,500 square foot house? I think it was a 50, that's not a huge house, of course, but a 1,500 square foot um, house, say, uh, in, in three cities, uh, in three metropolitan areas, Winnipeg, Toronto, and Vancouver. And what we found in was that there is very little difference in the price of constructing a house. You can build a house in Vancouver for almost as inexpensively as you can build a house in Winnipeg, okay, or mm -hmm. or, or Toronto. What is the difference? Well, there's seven, eight hundred thousand dollar difference in the prices of those houses though when they go to market. Why? Because of the land. Because of the way these planning policies force up land prices. And that's the real problem. And, and so, so, I mean, it, it really comes down to that. Yeah, no, I, I think that's powerful information. So it's not so much the price of the house, it's the price of the land. And by golly, if government is creating this bubble around land prices, then you're going to get this mess. Yeah, let me, say, let me say also, if I can, you can't place a tent on a lot in Vancouver and have it be affordable for purchase. Yeah, it's the truth. Exactly. That says everything right there. So it's the price of the land. Right. So you have to figure out, based on the careful research, uh, Wendell and, and Charles, you've done as well, that illustrate this train wreck. There's there's real reasons why government has um, uh, created this mess. So both of you have used very incisive language that this is a existential threat to the middle class. And I believe it is. Like, who can buy a house in these particular markets. It's, it's, it's certainly not the middle class. So when it comes to this issue though, I'm wondering if it's also another existential threat to these larger cities, namely their economic centers. And I, I know that um, one of our friends and colleagues, uh, one of the leaders uh, in this area again is Alain Berthaud. And he, I was at a, a recent discussion with him and he emphasized that cities are labor markets. They're places where employers go to find employees and employees go to find employers. So do you agree with that perspective, Wendell? Oh, yeah, absolutely. They, they are two things. They are labor markets and they are housing markets. So if you look at a metropolitan area, and that is a labor market, if you look at a metropolitan area, take Calgary, that's out there in the middle mm -hmm. of, of, of an area with, with a lot of land, um, you know, a lot, probably 95, 97 percent of the people that live in that metropolitan area, the, the workers also yeah. work in that metropolitan area. And by the way, I should mention also, because while you, you go to any Canadian city, you're going to see an impressive downtown area that, among the bigger ones anyway, great skyscrapers and everything. But yet, you know what? Not one of them has more than about 20 percent of the jobs in the metropolitan area. And, and it's, it, what has happened is the jobs have moved all over these areas, and, and that creates a situation where now the employees can get to work quicker. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And so that's a good news story. But at the same time, if your house price is so darn unaffordable, how does any employer have any hope of recruiting anybody? Like I, I see an exodus of economic activity in major centers if they don't have affordable housing where are they going to how are they going to recruit their next employee charles does, right. does, does that not lead to the breakdown of that regional economy then 
No, it very much does. I mean, and wages are never going to keep up with the rate at which we're seeing housing co- costs increase. So you do have that issue. And I know that what we've been seeing here are that headquarters have been moving out because they need to be in a place that their workers can live. And so we've been seeing relocations that are coming, um, would have previously come into our major cities are now uh, leaving and relocating to Texas, but in unincorporated areas. And then those that are in the major cities are also relocating outside so that their workers can be closer to, to where they work. And what we're also seeing is that we, um, even our public employees, our firefighters, teachers, and, and police officers, mm-hmm. and they recently did a survey in our city, and roughly half of our firefighters cannot afford to live inside city limits because of the costs. And wow. so what does that then do for, for services, especially when you need folks be, to come in for overtime or different things like that? Exactly. It puts such a strain on the system. And these are people who, you know, they work in for this public entity, which can't move and which certainly isn't going to increase wages nearly as fast as the private sector. And so for them, it's even more of a crisis. Well, and you give the example of firefighters um, and uh, say police officers. Um, I've heard that a number of universities are finding it almost impossible to recruit people to those centers because, you you know, a a well-paid university professor can't even afford to live there. I mean, it's, it's truly a train wreck, let alone really critical jobs that are on the service side, like persons helping uh, elderly people in in seniors or retirement homes. How would you have any hope of recruiting someone other than them, you know, spending hours and hours of their life uh, commuting to their place of work? That's 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 really a recipe for for a disaster, is it not? Yes, I think so. Yep. And 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 the world has changed significantly in the last three to four years. And that is we have seen in all of our cities and not just in Canada and the United States, but around the world, people now realize they don't have to come to work. A lot of people don't have to come to work. Um, a large percentage of people in the United States and Canada are now working hybrid schedules of two, three, four days a week. Uh, others are remotely working. And so, uh, mm-hmm. yes, it's going to be it's very difficult. And we're going to see that go further. Um, in the future, because uh, you, you, you see a continuation of improved uh, systems for meetings and so on. And, and no, the, the, the big cities have a real problem and it's not solved wow. easily. So when we look at um, the impacts of housing, we know that housing is, is important on many angles. Um, to ask a, a really basic question, if you don't have um, a good home, um, how does that impact the social behaviors of our society? I mean, does this impact the birth rate, the ability to uh, have uh, children move out of the home and, and leave the nest? I mean, isn't this all interrelated to the health and development of our society? Certainly. I mean, you know, to move out of the nest for, for young families who want to start a family and have to move out of the city because they can't afford to get a home with enough space. Um, yeah, it, it, I mean, it, it has massive impacts as you continue to, to go on. And I think one of the things that doesn't get addressed enough in this conversation is that these urban planners often argue that, you know, they want to constrain people in the cities because they can build up and it can be more affordable and they can address all of these needs. But what they're doing is making the problem worse for those people that we just mentioned, for folks on fixed income, for the elderly, for the low income, all of the people who don't have an opportunity to live, you know, maybe an hour plus outside of the city and are forced to stay in that city. Um, They're making lives worse, making their lives worse while trying to claim that the policies that they're pushing are making their lives better. And and let me add, let me add something there too. Building up is not less expensive. I mean, it is incredible. 
Um, take a look at Vancouver. Take a look at the city of Vancouver. Talk about a city that is built up. It's unbelievable. I know of no city in the in Western Europe or, or North America that has increased its population so much without annexing or combining with another city. Vancouver mm. has, has really increased its population. And has that made it more affordable? No. In our survey, it comes up third worst out of 94. And, and wow. just as, as an example, San Jose in the San Francisco Bay Area, city of about a million people. Uh, the city uh, this last week issued a report that basically said, uh, we can't, uh, developers cannot build housing in the city of San Jose that, that, that they can afford, that they can make a profit on to make it financially feasible. Whether that's affordable housing, low-income housing, or whether it is market-rate housing. And by the way, they're talking about 900-square-foot housing. I mean, that's incredible. Wow. So when we look at that example, and I just want to repeat that. So you're saying Vancouver is the third worst of the 94 markets around the world. Is that correct? Yeah, well, only eight countries. But it is eight countries eight around countries, the world. Pardon. Right. Okay, but these are the these are stunning statistics for a country that is as huge as Canada from coast to coast to coast has as much land, I would say, as what all of Europe. Uh, I mean, it's incredible the amount of land we have. And yet we're confining all this urban development. I get it. There's mountains and water, but we are imposing all these government policies to create this land bubble and it's hurting people and it's decimating the middle class. That's what's really going on here. Is that a fair summation? I, I know it sounds very dramatic, but is that not a fair summation? I certainly think it is. I mean, you know, with these folks, it's it's the ideology supersedes the outcomes. I mean, you can see what this result is. This is not Wendell's first time doing this report. I mean, he's been talking about the, the lack of affordability for a long time. And people li who live there know that it's also not affordable. But yet the ideology takes front seat and they continue to push these policies knowing that the harm that it causes. Okay, so Charles, you say ideology. It's almost like a, a religion, let's say, where someone is, is that explain, Wendell, why so many political decision makers then can't seem to hear this? Like if, if I look at the case in Toronto with the greater Toronto um, area, there was a, a green belt, so-called green belt that was designated around the city. So it's like a, a huge wall of green, right. supposedly green, where it's a no goal for development. And, you know, the inability of, of the premier, Doug Ford, to be able to make any progress to open that up. And I know there's been some concerns around shenanigans. Uh, fair enough. But he's, he was on the right track, was he not, Wendell? Well, you know, on the assumption that, that, that he and his administration did everything, you know, procedurally right. Yes, indeed. I mean, there's no way you're going to solve the kind of problem that Toronto or, 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 or Vancouver has without making land, without using greenfield land. And by the way, just quickly mm -hmm. to say, you know, we hear all this stuff about we're trying to stop sprawl to save agriculture. Well, let me tell you, the land that has been taken out of agricultural production is far greater than all of the land than, than all of the land that is covered by the cities that were developed over the last 400 years in Canada. I mean, to, to think for a moment that, that, that urbanization is a threat to agriculture is absolutely crazy. 
And anybody wow. who has ever really looked at this subject knows that. But you hear that all the time, oh, yeah. uh, uh, yeah. Wendell, is that somehow um, we have a food security crisis in Canada. Uh, and I'm, I'm sure you hear that, um, Charles, oh, yeah. as well in, in the United States all the time. So that that's kind of like spinning a yarn here. That's not really grounded in the evidence. Right. Just Right. In the same way that they say that, you know, sprawl is, is even significantly more worse for the environment than, than the dense urban cores. I mean, what we're seeing with developments today in kind of the reuse of rainwater and the, the reducing of, of uh, vehicle miles because things are consolidated within subdivisions and neighborhoods is actually better. But they refuse to acknowledge that, again, because it goes back to the ideology um portion of the conversation. But yes, I, it, that's exactly it. It's not grounded in fact, but they will continue to repeat it until it's until they, people believe it. So why do you think, um, Wendell, then we hear so many um, other reasons that, like that are put before us that explain this crisis? Like I hear regularly people talking about, well, we don't have enough agricultural land, right? As we mentioned, we also have the issue of foreign buyers. The foreign buyers are the villains. Um, we hear things saying that, well, we just need to densify up and eliminate parking garages. Well, that will be somehow our solution to build more. And we need to build smaller houses. Those are, that's just, that is that going to result in the solution that we need on the scale to create the supply that we need to create housing affordability, Wendell? No, oh, no, not at all. Uh, the, 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 regrettably, much of this has no serious, uh, no serious research behind it. And, you know, for example, I, I hear all sorts of stuff about how wonderful it is to, to try to, 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 to reduce parking requirements and so on. Well, I'll tell you what's going to happen in any city that does that and tries densification is you're not going to be able to park near your house or near your apartment in the long run, and you're going to have real problems. And, uh, you know, the fact is, if you like traffic congestion, then you need to densify. Densification routinely brings traffic congestion. I can tell you uh, that there, there are at least two organizations, in, in, uh, one in this country, in, in the States, and one in, um, in Europe, that do annual reports of traffic congestion. And I tell you, the traffic congestion is the worst where the densities are the highest. Okay, so... Charles, then, in light of what Wendell just said, is the 15-minute, the so-called 15-minute city where we see a city where everything is magically 15 minutes away from us, our work, our, you know, our grocery store, um, our work of, you know, place of, of recreation is all within 15 minutes. Is that the solution? You know, I, I don't know that it is. I, I think what we're seeing is what people we're following what people want to do, right? And so I'll give an example of of this, it's not really a city; it's a census designated place north of Houston called the Woodlands, which they kind of built out to facilitate growth of people who wanted to live in a suburban community outside of the city of Houston. Now they kind of built it surrounding what the market demanded more so than some sort of ideology. And and in that city, you can find everything within a fifteen minute span, but you also don't find the densification. You don't don't find the the uh, the kind of constraints that you would find, like I mentioned, outside of the city of Austin before. They allow for development. They allow for different um, economic opportunities. You, you now see corporate relocations going up there. And so that kind of market-based 15-minute city works. But I think when we try to just kind of layer on this ideology and push a policy um, that people aren't necessarily demanding, you start to see the negative outcomes from that. Okay, so what do you say about the 15-minute city, uh, Wendell? Is that well, a figment of some imagination? The, the real proponents of it 
um, it, it, it came out of a pair out of a planner uh, in Paris and Paris is a wonderful place and Paris is a 15 minute city and it's amazing what you can do when you have uh, 70 or 80,000 people per square mile um, but but the fact is that uh, the, the proponents of the 15-minute city, are, I, I live in a 15-minute city too. And in fact, the farms begin two lots away from me. Uh, and I can get okay. to anything I need to get to in my car in 15 minutes. No problem, okay? And, and, but, but the idea is we're gonna, we, we want you to have a 15-minute city where people can walk or bike or go on transit and get wherever they need to. Now, first of all, anybody mm -hmm. that can get on transit and get where they need to go in 15 minutes, walking to the bus stop, waiting at the bus stop, that doesn't exist. That's nothing but ideal. So, so no, I mean, it's, it's a hopeless solution. And, and, and the problem with, with the planning community is they think, every, they think every grocery store is the same. You know, if you had just one grocery store 15 minutes from you and, and, and everybody in that 15-minute corridor uh, went to that grocery store, you can bet you wouldn't be getting the prices you'd get going to a supermarket or a hypermarket. And, and that's one of the wonderful things the automobile has done for us. It has created mm -hmm. a market where we can go all over the city and find bargains. It really reduces the, 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 the cost of living. Okay, so, you know, both of you have alluded to the reality that we have these people called planners and there's other persons kind of, you know, in that circle. And I've had the pleasure of working with many fine people, uh, planners, urban planners, uh, over my years as well. Um, but you know, they're they're part of the um, dare I say uh, villains. <laughs> uh, this kind of illusion that we can kind of centrally plan out everything, and is is that kind of part of the the ideolo ideology that you're referring to? And and how do we deal with this? Because it it, it feels like they're wanting to impose a kind of a theoretical model of how everyone else is to live. And um, they probably themselves don't even live this way. What do you, what do you think about that, uh, Charles? Yeah, I, I mean, I think you're exactly right. It's part of that ideology. And, and I've met some great planners too. And many of the great ones are the ones who rely on the data to then, you know, push forward the policies that they yeah. support rather than just kind of using what the the, the crowd wants and what their, you know, acad friends in academia want. And so I think for, for most people, what they need to do is be a little more outspoken about what's going on. Because when you watch some of these meetings, particularly here, I, you know, I watch a lot of city council meetings and planning commission and all these things. Mm -hmm. And it's always that that unified group of urban planners who show up in full force to testify for these novel policies that they come up with that they want to see implemented. And they usually went out because there's no one there speaking to the opposite side there. And I think yeah. that's the problem. It is they, you know, our, our local officials, state officials and even federal officials often hear from one side. And, you know, we always know that the squeaky wheel gets the oil. And I think that's the thing is people need to recognize that they have to be a little more outspoken about their demands and their needs. I think there are other other signals that our officials are going to take, such as population declines and, and tax base reductions and things like that. But by the time you get there, it's a little too late and you want to get address the problem far before that. I think that's a very good point that for a lot of people, the, the planning process and how cities develop now is a little bit of a mystery and they don't realize how much process encumbers everything and how difficult it is to find land again to grow and build houses for people. So Wendell, as you look then at this issue, is this truly a situation, and I'm thinking of the Canadian context in particular, based on your report that you've issued, 
is this situation honestly just going to go from bad to even worse? Like, I, I honestly can't say how much worse it's going to get, but is that it's just going to continue to get worse. Is that the bottom line? Well, I guess first thing, first of all, I would rec- I would suggest that how it is in British Columbia and Ontario, Southern Ontario, and and by the way, Western Quebec, uh, the, the essentially the Quebec, to, uh, the, the Montreal to uh, to Ottawa got in a corridor and a little bit up towards uh, uh, Three Rivers. To, to, I don't know how you say it in French. Um, mm-hmm. The fact is that it is already to a place that it's got to be improved. It is not acceptable. But at the same time, if you go out to those exurbs of Toronto, again, Guelph and and, in London and so on, prices are continuing to rise relative to income. So, yes, it it seems to me that most places it's going to get worse. I am very concerned (laughs) about the places where it is okay because I wouldn't be surprised if we come back in 15 years as the exodus continues out of Toronto and Montreal and Vancouver. And by the way, they're not losing population because you have a federal government that wants a million wants a million immigrants a year from overseas. That's what we're getting in the United States. And we're 10 times as large as you almost. So mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. so what's happening is all sorts of immigrants, the the first place they tend to go is Toronto, because Toronto is a great place, especially for immigrants, because it's so diverse. Mm-hmm. But but um, the, the demand is going to continue to be far beyond what the plans allow to be built. And that's the real problem. So I would expect that it will continue to get worse and it can get a lot worse. <clears throat> I told you that Vancouver costs are 12 times um, are 12 time, times incomes. In Hong Kong, they're 18 times, and they were at one point 22 times. A lot of places yeah. around the world, they're much worse than that. So we in the Western world have been very fortunate to have um, affordable housing because we let the market deliver it, and it delivered it. It delivered it even in mm-hmm. Canada until the yeah. planner said, no, we don't trust you anymore to deliver what you've been delivering all along. Affordable housing is something different, right? Where Public yeah, entities yeah. want to build housing, a la like you know they used to do with the Soviets. So is that a solution? Well, again, affordable housing generally, if you look at both the United States and Canada, you find that means subsidized housing. Nothing wrong with subsidized housing, but no, n- neither country has ever done done nearly so much uh, as much as it's promised to do. And by the way, that's typical around the world because there's just not enough federal, uh, enough support among people willing to raise their taxes to provide it. But when you say affordable housing, we're talking about subsidized housing. When you say housing affordability, you're talking largely about market rate housing, which is 80, 90 percent of the housing stock one way or the other. Indeed. So, Charles, if you hear the the term uh, affordable housing, in other words, housing provided by the state, has it ever been affordable for the taxpayer? <laughs> no, and you know, it's and when you look at some of these reports, these audits of what local governments spend per unit on affordable ha- affordable housing, it's just mm-hmm. unbelievable. I mean, you could buy a you know a small actual home in, in, in the unincorporated part of the county or something like that for the same amount of money. So it's really unbe- it's just unbelievable the amount they spend. But this goes to kind of a deeper problem where you have these officials who are all too willing to to pursue that path of building 
quote unquote, affordable housing, rather than taking the more difficult path, which is addressing the underlying cost, the underlying reason as to why housing is not affordable to begin with. And it's in similar sense as we see a lot of cities, I don't know if you guys are having this in Canada, but we're certainly seeing it pop up in cities in, in America where they're um, embracing kind of a guaranteed basic income to offset the cost of living. So just a monthly stipend, um, no work requirement um, or anything like that. They're willing to do that. They'll jump at the chance to do that. They'll jump at the chance to build affordable housing, like we mentioned, but they they kind of shudder at the thought of addressing the underlying, the root cause of why housing is, is not affordable. Yeah. Well, it's, it's uh, frankly disturbing. Uh, we know that housing is important. It's important not only for a place to live, but also a place of hope where one can build their family, a future life. And uh, I, I think this is a very important part of building a positive culture. And I think of housing, you know, if you, if you have a, a nation built on renters versus owners of their own houses, this is a, an important lesson in history, is it not, Wendell? No, I think so. Uh, we, we've seen around the Western world since World War II, um, housing, um, ha- home ownership rise and, and the, the, the development of strong democracies. Uh, there are all sorts of studies that suggest that um, neighborhoods that have a higher percentage of home ownership tend to be more stable and that kind of thing. People like um, uh, uh, people like to own their own stuff. So uh, exactly, it, it's, it's, it, home ownership is really very important, and you you don't really find many governments that are against it. I mean, all over the place, uh, governments are in favor of home ownership, even though sometimes their policies aren't very helpful. To the, to the matter. Exactly. Well, I, uh, you know, Wendell, uh, we had the honor of, um, and, and uh, Charles of meeting recently with a delegation from uh, the, the nation of Singapore, which is an extraordinary nation that has come from uh, um, uh, more of a, a basic level of economy decades ago to one of the wealthiest nations in the world. And their emphasis explicitly in terms of policies is on home ownership. And I think it shows in terms of their approaches, and also they are amazingly affordable. Uh, is that correct, uh, Wendell? Yes, uh, and it, it, they are. And, and Singapore is the only country I know of, and I don't know them all for sure. But Singapore is the only country I know of where it is a national objective to have housing be affordable, and uh, mm-hmm. they've been very successful. They started out really as uh, as what we would have in those days in the '60s called a third world nation terrible poverty, slums, uh, shanty towns, etc. And, and now um, they've, they've got a home ownership rate of 90% now. They have a wonderful program whereby the government makes sure the housing is there, high, hires private contractors to build it. And when you buy a, gov- a, a, a home from the Singapore government, from the Housing and Development Board, uh, it is yours. You can sell it. And so they've managed to figure out how to do that kind of thing. And of course, the, the great thing for them, the reason that they've had to go with this is Singapore also has very little land. It is a it is a uh, an, an island that's only about six or seven hundred square miles, square kilometers. I mean, the size of the city of Toronto. And I don't mean the pre the, the pre uh, consolidation city. I mean, the city today of, of Toronto. 
I just wanted to add one thing to, to a point that Wendell was making about kind of the, the emphasis on home ownership. You know, you'll often hear from the kind of urban urban planner group that people, particularly low income minorities in the city, prefer to rent. And that's just not true. Many of these folks will regularly tell you that they want to own a home. They would love to own a home in the neighborhood that they're from, and they just are unable to do that. But you often hear this narrative that they would prefer to rent, and it's just not true. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And and the related part of that, I think, begs the issue, in certainly in this country, in Canada, whether we take uh, the rights and freedoms, namely property rights, seriously. Because what you've outlined, both of you, suggests that government is encroached thoroughly into, um, even though you own the land, basically controlling every aspect of how that land is used, basically taking and de facto the rights of your property from underneath your nose. And this is just unconscionable, is it not, Wendell? Oh, no question about it. Uh, and, and what we've seen happen, um, and this is way off the subject, but, but when these things have happened uh, in the state of Oregon, for example, um, farmers who were sitting outside the city of Portland who were looking forward to the day that they could uh, you know, sell their land and provide a legacy to their children, their land, their land was essentially expropriated because the value was taken away from it. So exactly. Yeah. So, so case in point, if you look at the um, examples in Toronto of imposing that green belt, and in British Columbia where they've imposed what's called the agricultural agricultural land reserve, it's the same result. You own the land, but all of a sudden the government has swooped in and taken away your rights to do anything with it. Essentially, as it is, it not uh, Wendell. No question. But the bigger thing, you know, you, you know, a, a lot of people may not be bothered by people they perceive to be rich, not getting richer. Um, however, the bigger cost is the cost to the is the cost to people. The, the, the fact that you are you are essentially consigning people to poverty in cities like the CMA of Toronto and in places like Portland and San Francisco in this country. And, and you know what? We're talking about the difference. What, what is better, urban sprawl or poverty? I will vote for urban sprawl any day. I've been yeah. close enough to poverty to know that it's not very good. And I have exactly. been as close as a lot of people. So well said. And, and so that's the point, Charles, is not only are these dysfunctional government policies killing the middle class, they're shoving people thoroughly into poverty, period. Is that right? Very much so. And, you know, it, it's it's funny or interesting that you guys bring this this point up because there was a recently, a, you know, a fight here in our city where the city wanted to levy what they called conservation districts on top of pre-existing neighborhoods. And this was just a set of regulations that they would then implement on a small neighborhood and say that, you know, you have a set of historic homes that have been here since whatever year. Now you cannot update them without going back and purchasing things that are specific to that year. You cannot do any adjustments to the land that it's sits on. And you had these older homeowners who bought their homes in the 40s, 50s, 60s, I mean, very old, or their children who had who had since taken over coming to them saying, you know, this home has been paid off. We can only afford to live in this area because it is paid off and we can afford the taxes. But now you're telling us that we can't even do any updates to the to the structure or to the land if wow. something were to happen. And so luckily, this one neighborhood that pushed back did end up killing this. But you're seeing a lot of these these attempts at regulating what's happening on the land, on pre-existing land that people have lived on for years um, from the city. I mean, and, and recently in the state of Texas, they passed a bill 
to um, allow de-annexation from certain cities because what we were seeing there is that you know, a, a developer would buy a swath of land in a city just on the still within the city, but kind of at the limits and plan a subdivision. And then you would see the city start to then levy these regulations on top of it and delay permitting and all these other issues where now you're dragging it out two, three, four years or just driving up the cost so much that it's uh, not going to be able to sell or it's just unaffordable for the developer to pursue the project. And so the legislature moved to allow them to file a complaint and then formally remove themselves from the city. And so that's what I like to see is pushback against the cities when they do these things, because they've they've been doing it for far too long and they've gone unchecked. And I think it's time to really start to put them back in their box when it comes to that stuff. Well, it's a great overview, Charles, and it reminds us as citizens that we've got to pay attention, open up our eyes and see the myriad of red tape and policies that really, in many respects, are driven by special interests, uh, the privileged few who really want to ultimately... Uh, uh, impose a kind of a vision of their future onto us without really realizing how that's going to impact people. And, uh, you know, the middle class, the poverty rates, it's all interrelated, isn't it? So as we look at wrapping up our discussion, um, I've heard today some, you know, pretty powerful reality therapy about housing affordability, certainly in Canada and beyond, and important lessons and solutions for what we can do. So if we were to advise, um, Wendell, I'll start with you first and then Charles, about what citizens can do. Um, what would your advice be to them? Well, that's a good question. I, uh, I mean, obviously, uh, be concerned about the issue and, 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 and learn about the issue. Um, support policies that, that improve housing affordability. Um, but, you know, I, I'm just not sure what, what the, the, the individual situ, a citizen can do except to educate themselves and vote right, as it were. And speak up. What about you, yeah. Charles? Yeah, I mean, just to chime in on what Wendell said, I think it really comes down to kind of monitoring, you know, it's it's to bite off, it's too big of a, a bite to take to just address what the federal government does. I think if everybody were focused on with their city and with their neighborhoods we're doing, they might be able to have a bigger impact. So I think it comes down to making sure you're aware of what's going on on the local level, because it's like we said before, with these urban planners and these groups who are, who are determined to push this policy, they're very outspoken, they're very organized, and they're often very well funded. But I think the problem is, is that there's just the other side missing, that voice is missing from the conversation. And so it is going to require people to kind of be a little more outspoken about those things. And, you know, for those who don't have the time, it, it can be as simple as making sure that you're voting for the right people, because a lot of people say the right things, but they have a track record of not doing the right things. Or, you know, you might very much like your city council member, but they have a history of voting for these policies that just exacerbate the housing crisis. And so we have to make those hard decisions to do something different when we start to see those issues arise. Well, right on. I've really appreciated our conversation with you, uh, Wendell Cox, Senior Fellow and Primary uh, Researcher and Author of uh, this year's Demographia Housing Affordability Index. Uh, be sure to look at our website to see that. Um, it's very instructive and very important. And then also uh, Charles Blaine, the President of the Urban Reform Institute. I'm so grateful that we could talk about housing affordability and, dare I say, rebuilding the Canadian dream. So uh, thank you for joining us and all the best to you. Thank you. Thank you. 
Thank you for watching Leaders on the Frontier. We're a nonpartisan think tank. We explore ideas, policy, and practical solutions that can make a difference in the lives of Canadians. We do not accept any government funding. We work for you. Thank you for supporting Frontier. Visit fcpp.org to give. While you're there, be sure to check out our latest articles and research. Without open discussion and debate, you're not thinking, nor are you free. Comment below. We'd love for you to join the conversation.